I want to bear witness this afternoon to love, life, death, and the glory of God. Please pray with me. Lord of glory, we worship you. Open our hearts and minds to receive from you as we reflect on your word. Amen. January 8th was the feast day of Jim Elliot, killed 68 years ago in 1956, along with four others, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint, martyred for their faith. They felt the call of God to bring the good news of God's love to the notoriously violent Warani tribe in Ecuador. My husband John and I talked at length last week about the impact their deaths had on us as children. Their deaths rocked not only the Christian evangelical world of the day, but the secular world as well, making a multiple-page story in Life magazine. We paged through that magazine many times. I'm not sure anyone knew quite what to think or how to feel. They were modern-day martyrs, but should they have taken such a risk? Why did God allow them to be killed? They died of spear wounds inflicted by the very people with whom they had begun to share the good news of Jesus' love, of Jesus coming from heaven to earth for their sakes. In his journal, Jim Elliot wrote the familiar and famous lines, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot lost his life and gained eternal glory with God. Shockingly and amazingly, Elliot's widow, Elizabeth, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, returned to that tribe and stayed to continue to witness of God's love. It wasn't until 1995, nearly 40 years later, when Nate's oldest son, Steve, and his family spent a year back with that tribe, specifically with those who had killed his father, that more of the story of God's glory was learned. With tribal members who had become believers, they went back to that riverside, the site of the attack. As one of the women who'd been there that day, um, the day that the men were killed, was explaining some things to the visitors, she made a reference to the other foreigners who were there. Steve Saint began asking all who had been there the day that his father and the others were killed what they had seen and heard as they were being speared to death. And all who were there spoke of white people or bright lights or foreigners above the trees chanting. They said, we knew it was supernatural, not of this world, and we were afraid. Later, when one of them heard choral music, he said, yes, that's what we heard. They heard and saw angels. A choir of angels sang as the five men were killed. Heaven opened. The boundary between heaven and earth was permeable. 
At the end of our gospel passage that I just read, Jesus says to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus' ministry was just beginning, and there was no reference point for them to connect Jesus to that prophetic phrase, Son of Man, or to understand and connect Jesus' reference to the familiar story of Jacob's ladder, another instance of heaven and earth permeability, with Jesus himself. But maybe you recall that story, Jacob, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in fear, is fleeing from the justified anger of his brother Esau. In the wilderness, in the circumstances of his estrangement, he encounters the presence of God at night in a dream. He dreamed that there was a ladder set upon the earth, the top of it reaching all the way to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him in his dream and said, I am the Lord, and went on to speak blessing and promise to Jacob. Then Jacob woke up and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. How true! Jacob experienced the glory and presence of God in that place. Neither the tabernacle nor the temple had been built or even imagined in Israel's history yet. But there was the glory of God, earth to heaven, heaven to earth, angels ascending and descending, made manifest to Jacob, an opening to God's glory. Years later, we read of the child, Samuel, in our Old Testament passage, ministering to the Lord in the tabernacle, where God's glory, God's presence was known to rest. As a very young child, Samuel was brought to live in the house of God, and so he lived and worked in the very place where God was known to dwell. And by the way, wonderfully, the Lord's presence in tabernacle or temple or any identified holy place or thin place does not dilute his presence elsewhere. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. But for those who serve in set-apart places, there is a sensitivity, a receptivity, an openness to God. Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. According to one Hebrew scholar, the form of the Hebrew word for Samuel's ministering includes the meaning of worship and caregiving. Young Samuel was worshiping God, and Eli's spirit was ministered to. Now, the priest Eli was very old, and it had been a long time since God has spoken to his people. And I'm not really going to try and dig into the story of Samuel's call here, but I'm sure you heard a great deal of confusion and misdirection as it was read. The community, the people of God, had neglected to enjoy the joy of life with God, with their living God. 
So Samuel grows up, and if we were to read on, we would learn that the presence, the glory of God in that tabernacle, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, departed from Israel when Samuel began his prophetic priestly ministry. It's actually a really distressing and sad story. But in our passage, we read of Samuel's responsiveness and closeness to God. Heaven and earth, heaven comes to earth in the audible voice of the Lord calling his name, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel goes on to become the prophet who anoints David king. King David, composer of many psalms, including our psalm today, which David wrote while experiencing the presence of God in the wilderness of Judah. And we could skip along through the liturgical calendar, and we can dip down into God's word, and we know all kinds of stories where God makes himself known to his people. And we know that heaven and coming to earth is actually a theme of Advent and Christmastide. We've just finished those seasons. We remember Luke writing of the appearance of angels to Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, and then a host of angels singing glory to God in the highest at Jesus' birth. Ho hum. I wonder if we even pay attention to these parts of that story. And now here we are at Epiphany, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all stress the tearing open of the heavens as the Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism, where Jesus' divinity is established, and Jesus is known to come to bring good news to the notoriously violent and God-dishonoring people of this world. The Gospel writer John at Jesus' baptism adds and anticipates the glory of God in Jesus' mission. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And time will not permit us to develop the foundational theme of the tabernacle and temple, but here we see Jesus, the living temple of God, the manifest presence of God in the flesh, named as the one who will become the sacrificial lamb. In the beginning was the Word, and the creating Word of God became flesh, tabernacled among us, and challenged the darkness. Heaven come to earth. Jesus, superior to angels, for to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And from his fullness have we all received grace upon grace. The testimony of John the Baptist and then Jesus' call of such ordinary first disciples who thought they were looking for Jesus when all the while Jesus had his eyes set on them is so underscored in John's Gospel. It's humbling to have John show us Jesus gathering his first disciples, his body, who will themselves become temples. Yes, even us who are also temples of the Holy Spirit, not of our own rights or our own initiative, but by God's grace and mercy. The proper preface in our Eucharistic liturgy for Epiphany declares that through Jesus Christ our Lord, who took on our mortal flesh to reveal his glory, that he might bring us out of darkness and into his glorious light. 
The glory of God is to share, to include, to make himself known to his creation, to redeem, to save. Jesus calls us one and all. In the section previous to our passage in John's Gospel, as Jesus walked by John the Baptist, two of John's followers heard him exclaim, Behold the Lamb of God. And since they were serious seekers and they were actually looking for the Messiah, they turned and followed Jesus. One of those two followers was Andrew, who went and found his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah. Then Andrew brings Simon to Jesus, who promptly changes his name to Peter. And then the next day, Jesus goes out and finds Philip, a friend of Simon and Andrew's, and calls to him, Follow me. Then Philip goes and finds his friend Nathanael and brings him to Jesus. As we read on, Nathanael initially distances himself from Jesus as the Messiah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But Jesus, approaching Nathanael, names him as well. Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. To call Nathanael an Israelite was a religious reference, not a, a nationalistic one. Jesus was saying, here's a man of God who's honest. And Jesus gets Nathanael's attention. But the moment Jesus establishes himself as God, and more importantly, the God who was with Nathanael under the fig tree, Nathanael's perception changes. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And with these words, we hear a foreshadowing of Pilate, son on the cross, sign on the cross, king of the Jews, and of death. In a few short verses, I hope you heard a variety of reactions to who Jesus is and a lot of different responses to Jesus' call. Andrew follows after Jesus after he hears John's endorsement and he spends a day with him. Philip responds immediately, and Philip, like John the Baptist, focuses completely on Jesus, and like Andrew, he brought his brother Simon, renamed Peter. Then Philip brings his friend Nathaniel, who takes some persuasion, but then he's all in. John paints a portrait of discipleship arising in various circumstances, in various ways, among various people, just like us. But John also opens a window to Nathan, excuse me, Jesus opens a window to Nathaniel and to those first disciples to his glory. Truly, truly, I say to you, plural, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Those who believe in Jesus those who become his disciples see and experience the presence of God in their lives. Acknowledged or not, God is present, and those who know God apprehend his presence. Now, you and I know scripture, and we know some church history, and so we have some insight into the continued life of Jesus' disciples. And we know the cost that some of the first disciples of Jesus paid. We know the costs that many disciples of Jesus paid throughout the years and the centuries of church history, including Jim Elliot. 
all those disciples who came out of their own sin and shame and darkness and brought others with them to Jesus, into Jesus' glorious light. To change the metaphor, disciples of Jesus learned to draw water from the source of living water, Jesus. They drink deeply, and they themselves become water, poured out, as the Apostle Paul writes, as an offering to God. Jesus came to share his glory with us, to transform our spirits, to enable us to share his glory and mission so that others would see God in us and they too would experience his presence, his life. Heaven comes to earth in our hearts and in our lives daily, hourly. About a month ago, I opened my car window to give some money to a woman, dare I say begging, on the side of the road at an intersection. And when I'm the first car in line and the light is red, I feel like I can engage the person. So I sometimes ask, what's your story? Why are you here? She answered, I screwed up. Do you know that's not the first time I've heard a homeless person say that? Because in truth, we've all screwed up and we all need help. She was just willing to say it. But one thing she and I have in common, we're both homeless because this world is not our home. We need a savior who calls us by name, who makes himself known, who left the company of angels to take on our flesh so that we could look to a better country, to a dwelling place with him. Her story is not my story or your story, and there are no shortcuts to glory. Jesus walked the path laid out in front of him, the early disciples walked the path in front of them, and as disciples of Jesus, so must we uh, walk our own path and not another's. But of course, Jesus walks with us. For some, the journey is a long obedience in the same direction. For others, a mere flash. But for all, for all, it is to live as temples of the Holy Spirit, sharing in Christ's glory in this life, such as it is, either until our own death or Christ's return. Have you ever heard the criticism of believers that if we think we're such committed disciples, then how come we can't even name Jesus' 12 disciples? Try it. We're tripped up by the renaming renamings like Simon to Peter, or by the several disciples with the same name, or in the case of Nathaniel, he's called Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels in the Book of Acts, and no explanation is given. What does it tell us that we can't just reel off the 12 disciples' names? We know and serve a living God. Illumined by God's word in the sacraments, we seek to shine with the radiance of Christ's glory that he may be made known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. The goal of our Christian life is to know Christ, to receive the glorious riches of his salvation in our lives, that we are changed in this life and we bring others into his life-giving, blessing-saving presence as well. 
Life in Christ is what is important, not running through the names of the disciples. But I could easily name 12 living disciples. All I need to do is look at you. I think back to last Sunday with Greta Willie's baptism and the beauty of that day. I think of our testimony Sunday two weeks ago, listening to how God is glorified in your lives. Wendell Berry says that a community is people who know one another's stories. As a local expression of Jesus' body here on earth, we are called to know and love one another. We love in times of celebration and blessing, and we love in times of sin or struggle or suffering. Jesus' gathering of disciples didn't end when he ascended to heaven. Nope, he left his Holy Spirit to indwell us, his body, the church, and remarkably, individually and together, we are the containers and communicators of the glorious grace of God. At the beginning of this sermon, I said I wanted to bear witness to love, life, death, and the glory of God. I was thinking a lot about Church of the Redeemer, all of us as disciples. And in a flash, Mirabel Rose came to my mind. And quite a few of you know who she was. And please don't be anxious as I share this story. The family has given me permission to talk about Mirabel. In 2014, Jordan and Emily Schroeder and Shirsty and Sawyer learned that the little life growing in Emily's womb was destined to die before, during, or within a short time of her birth. She had a fatal chromosomal genetic condition. They named her Mirabel Rose, and they loved her deeply through the pregnancy, through the live birth, and for the gift of the hours at home on hospice as she lived and died. The flash that went through my mind and heart was this. Was God glorified in Mirabel's short life? Yes, absolutely. How was he glorified? Well, he was glorified in her sweet little body, precious in his sight, created by him, perfectly knit together, to receive love and to give love by her very being. We know, in fact, that God works all things together for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God was glorified as Mirabel's parents and siblings honored her life, knowing she was a gift for only a short time a gift given by God which, out of love, they opened and shared her brief life with others. As I thought about Jordan and Emily's inclusion of others in Mirabel's life, I wondered about heaven and earth meeting in her story, their story as a family. They experienced the goodness, the glory of God's love through Mirabel. Jordan and Emily are disciples of Christ, just as I am, and Lord willing, you are. They did not push God away when they walked through the valley of the shadow of death with their child. As a family, they kept their hearts and minds submitted to the goodness of God. Mirabel truly was a manifestation of the glory of God. 
Our psalm today, 23, speaks of the integration and beauty of David's response to God's goodness in his life. David longs for God and finds his longings met as he worships God in the sanctuary and even on his bed. David writes, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I love to imagine David, harp in hand, in the company of angels, singing his heart out, surrounded by other saints who've gone before, Jim Elliot, Mirabel Rose, and us worshiping today in the shadow of God's wings. Let us worship God with the reverence of the Magi who traveled far to bow down before the infant Christ. Let us worship God with the pure heart of the child Samuel, whose worship not only blessed God, but blessed Eli. Let us bring heaven to earth as we receive Christ the Messiah in our hearts, as Nathaniel did when he proclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. And let us worship God as disciples who pursue holiness. In the New Testament, Christ is the temple, yet those who belong to Christ, body and soul, are temples as well. The believer's own flesh becomes a dwelling place for God, as our passage from 1 Corinthians acknowledges. The human body and the gatherings of bodies in fellowship is the dwelling place of the Almighty. So let us not use the grace of God to indulge our flesh. Rather, let us hold fast to our inheritance as children of God. John Mark Comer says, The more we align our lives to the teachings of Jesus, to his mental maps to reality as they come to us through scripture, the more we flourish and thrive and live in freedom and harmony in our relationships with God, with one another, and even in our own self, as we live under God's rule and reign. May our very lives be worship and bring heaven to earth. Jim Elliot also journaled and prayed, Oh, that God would make us dangerous. I think the kind of danger before each one of us is to give up our lives in the way that C.S. Lewis expressed it. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. If we truly lived like that, we would be a very dangerous people. God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and the manifest glory of God would be evident. God is right here with us in the midst of our biggest struggles, with us in the loss of a child, with us in the death of a husband, with us in the complexity of our relationships at home or work or school, 
with us in the political arena, right there with us in our ambivalence and fears about the moral relativism in the culture around us and in our very own hearts. Few of us, if any, will be martyred as Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the other three missionaries were on January 8, 1956. But all of us are called to put to death the things that dishonor God and keep his glory from being known throughout the whole earth. May we all bear witness to love, life, death, and the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.